The film itself had very mixed reviews, and I'm not a big advocate for aggregate reviewing, you know, percentages that way, but it really did, having looked at some of those, those numbers, it really got very mixed, kind of tepid response from the critics. So there's not a big critical push for it to, to get nominations. And secondly, commercially, I don't think it's really amounted to a whole lot, you know, so it doesn't really have that clout either critically or, or commercially. My feeling is if it does get a few nominations, it's lucky, and I just don't see it winning in any category. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to discuss Empire of Light and a man called Otto. And Mike, I think both of these are going to be Oscar favorites, but let's start with Empire of Light because there's nothing the Academy likes better than movies about movies. Where should we start with this particular film? Well, you know, Marie, your, your remarks tap into what the film essentially is about. Actually, it's about a lot of things, but I would say nostalgia. And one of the curious ironies is, you know, as we move forward in time, and how else can we move? When you think about a film like this, Empire of Light, it takes place at the dawn of the 1980s, and it involves a movie theater in England that has seen better days, but is still operating. So every time you see a movie on the marquee here, whether it's the Blues Brothers or Stir Crazy or all that jazz or Gregory's Girl, whatever, for any of us, or at least any of us of a certain age, you know, we, we think back, ah, yes, I remember those movies. And it takes you back to that time. And that's one of the wonders of cinema is just the, the way in which collectively we can revisit a particular decade. So there's an inherent appeal that way. So Marie, that's what you're getting at. It's a movie about movies, but it's also about many other things. And I have very mixed feelings about it as a film, but I have to acknowledge it's about many things. For me, the highlight of the film is actually twofold and, and related. Again, this is a uh, coastal city. It's an actually uh, you know beautiful old movie theater. Uh, and they used an actual movie theater, but renamed it The Empire. And, you know, basically sort of an art deco or streamlined modern design. And even though it's sort of down at the heels, it's still a really handsome building. And what's also really handsome here is the production design. It's a really well-crafted film. So even though I have mixed feelings about it thematically, I can't fault the production design. It's a pleasure to watch. And again, that taps in as to the nostalgia, obviously, too, just to revisit, you know, what it was like to go to the movies, you know, back in those days. And then related to that is the cinematography. It's by Roger Deakins, who's absolutely one of the world's top cinematographers. He's done most of the films for the Coen brothers, for instance. So, you know, what would a film like Fargo be without that cinematography? And so those were pleasures that kept me watching. I'll hand it back to you at this point, but, you know, I will eventually get back on topic here by way of why I think the film doesn't quite work thematically. But it actually really is a pleasure to watch at that basic level of movie-related nostalgia. I agree with you completely, Mike. The professionalism in the way it is put together is obvious. And I was very excited to see it because of Roger Deakins being the cinematographer. I don't think about the Coen brothers when I think of him. I think about 1917 and Shawshank Redemption, movies that just bring you in so much by the way it's shot and how well it's shot. And I think this, the lighting in this and the way this Empire of Light movie was put together, beautifully done. I agree with you completely that the production design is just about as excellent as you can get. Roger Deakins is at the top of his form. So nothing to criticize there. I also found Olivia Coleman to be absolutely delightful. And it's an unusual role 
in that she plays a woman who has some mental difficulties that she struggles with. And so she's not always a completely sympathetic character. And yet you're with her every moment of the story, no matter what she says or does, you know, you just feel the character, I think, very well rendered by Olivia Coleman. What did you think of Olivia Coleman? Well, again, the writer and director of the film, Sam Mendes, has, has done good work. And the reason I mentioned him at this point is, well, let's talk about her character. She plays the manager of, of the movie theater. And it's an interesting character because we know that she has just recently returned to the job from a stay in a mental hospital. So watching her character in the film, for the most part, she's sympathetic, but not always. She's not always the easiest person to be around, if, if you will. And, and so the film, I think, is quite honest that way, that it's on her side, if, if I can put it that way. But acknowledging that, you know, she, as a colleague, she's probably not the easiest person to work with on occasion. What really makes it work then is partly that it's a well-scripted uh, character, but also, of course, Olivia Coleman. You know, you get a, a top flight actor like that. And of course, you're going to earn all eyes on, on her. But here's where I, let me just dive in at this point to why I don't think the film quite works. You know, it's it's almost two hours long and it's, it's an appropriate length for the film, but it tries to pack a lot into those two hours. So let's sort of draw up a checklist of important issues that the film will deal with. There is the one, of course, of, of mental illness. And just, you know, that does keep you watching and caring about her. There also will be the issue of what I'll call middle age for the movie theater itself, which is, you know, sort of middle age and maybe beyond a bit. But for the, some of the characters, including hers. So that's that's an issue, certainly. There's also an issue involving another issue of sexism. Colin Firth plays the top dog, the, the, you know, the, the real manager of the theater. And uh, as a character, he's not that significant. I mean, he kind of sort of pops in and out of, of scenes. He's not really on screen a whole lot. And yet he does run the show, if you will. He, he's at the top of the staff. The sexism there is the fact that he and the manager, played by Olivia Coleman, have a not-so-clandestine affair and I hesitate to even call it an affair. It's more a matter of, uh, you know, in terms of the hierarchy here, he's the boss, she works under him, and he expects her in his office, you know, during the day time for an afternoon tryst. And believe me, it, it is loveless. This is not passion. This is not love. This is just simply, you know, what he expects of his employee. And she, you know, by way of power dynamics, she gives in. And, and again, there's no pleasure, no joy here. I would almost say for either one of them, it's just somehow kind of mechanical. And it's sad, actually, to watch this. And also, of course, aggravating the fact that he's the boss and he feels this is his right, if you will. So let's uh, our checklist here. We have the mental illness we've talked about, middle age, if you will, sort of linked to issues, uh, the sexism in terms of the power dynamics of a male boss and, and, and the female underling. And then racism kicks in because there's a, a new character introduced uh, named Stephen, who's a young black man in a predominantly white city and certainly in, in terms of the theater staff, you know, as he comes in. And bear in mind, this is the early 80s in England. We have pointed reminders that Margaret Thatcher is the prime minister. There is racial unrest and rioting. It's a tense situation. So when, when this new guy comes in, the staff, for the most part, is, is accepting, quote unquote, but, you know, the city itself, you know, you've got some skinhead elements and so on. So there's going to be tension that will spill into the theater lobby. And so, you know, again, the relationship between the character Stephen, the, the, young, the young black man who comes to work there and Coleman's manager, it's quite interesting. It's quite moving at times, you know, that kind of friendship there. And yet 
and even though, again, it's a really compelling issue socially has to be dealt with, think about the checklist we've drawn up. We have at least four or five major issues that have to be addressed. And the film, I think, stalls about halfway through because it very dutifully checks those boxes. And yes, I'm with it in terms of my own belief system. And, and you know, I want to acknowledge all the importance of what's being dealt with here. But it does seem after a while kind of, again, speaking of mechanical, it does seem kind of mechanical. It's like, okay, we've dealt with this issue. Now that one it sort of jumps from one to the other. And then moreover, the treatment of these issues is so blatantly sentimental at times that I feel like the issues aren't dealt with intellectually in as much depth as they might be. It's almost like acknowledging them and, and making us you know, shed a tear and then sort of moving on to the next issue. And so push come to shove, ultimately, it's all kind of superficial. It doesn't really register as profoundly as it means to. And it does seem to run longer than it actually does. And I think that's why. I think it's like, okay, we, we sort of hand off one issue to the next and then to the next. And it's like, okay, here we go again. As we go again, let me go to back to you again by way of, you know, how did you feel about that? Because thematically, you've got to acknowledge the importance of these issues, but it's like, like being clubbed over the head with them. I thought there was a nice moment with the young man's mother speaking to Olivia Coleman's character that I thought kind of redeemed, you know, the grab bag of social issues in there. I thought that that really kind of made a nice bit of closure to what was going on in a way. I also wanted to mention in terms of high points, I really liked Toby Jones as the projectionist, and it gave me a sense of cinema paradiso. And I know how much you like that movie, and you know we've both used that in our classes. What did you think about any parallels with cinema paradiso? Well, it's definitely there. Anytime you have a movie about movies and you get up into the projection booth, <laughs> how could you not think about that, right, Marie? But here, here's where it's frustrating. There are individual scenes that work extremely well. That scene with, with the young man's mother, yes, spot on. And, and yes, genuine emotion. It really registers. But uh, again, that's a brief moment, isn't it? And likewise, Toby Jones, as the projectionist, he really is a relatively minor character in the film. He kind of pops in and out. And so, yes, it's, it's enjoyable to watch him when he's on screen, but then he disappears for long stretches up into the booth. And so maybe that's inevitable because you've got all of the theater staff to deal with, and then you've got all the other issues out on the street, and, and it's just a lot to pack into the film. And so that's one of the reasons why it's a frustrating film, because I would you would like to spend more time with some of those characters and go into more depth there. But I think it just sort of skims along and then bounces from one character to another and, and back again. I also thought a high point of the movie was just sort of this look at, you know, what we kind of think of as backstage, even though it's the opposite of backstage, is the front of the house, it, the prepping for opening. And afterwards, when they're cleaning up after all of the people have spilled the popcorn and left behind all their detritus, I thought that stuff was really kind of fun to watch and enjoyable in terms of, you know, movies being a place where you go to sort of, you know, get a break from real life. And ironically, the Olivia Coleman character doesn't actually watch the movies. She is, you know, completely embroiled in her job, which is, you know, everything sort of around watching the movie until the scene near the end where she asks Toby Jones to show her a movie. What did you think about that, Mike? The, um, you know, the look at, you know, sort of theater behind the scenes at a movie theater. Well, first of all, thank you for using the word detritus. <laughs> I don't hear it nearly as often as I'd like to. It's, it's a perfect word in a lot of ways. But you're touching on one of the most interesting aspects of the film. 
I've had a number of friends and former students, for that matter, who've worked in theater management and, you know, just the, the ticket taker, the ticket seller. In fact, it's funny, like I'd sometimes go to the movies out in Columbia and I'm just sort of like, you know, pulled into myself and focused on whatever. And, and I'm asking to buy the ticket. And, you know, I hear a voice from behind the, the plexiglass saying, what are you here to see, Mr. G? And, you know, and it's like, oh, it's oh, so-and-so, my former student. And so anyway, knowing people who work in theater management and for that matter, a very good friend of mine had been a projectionist for years. So I'd spend time up in the booth. I, I sort of know the business that way. And you and I both know it in this respect that, you know, as film teachers. We also, of course, have film series and programs and this and that. We've all done the duties described in, in the film. Uh, we, yes, we've cleaned up after our patrons. Yes, we have to open the door and make sure everything's in order. And, and a lot of that is really mundane activity, isn't it? It's all important, but it's, it's you know sort of mundane. And one of the great ironies is that when you have a job like that, and it really is the job, sometimes even though you're the one presenting the movies, you don't always get a chance to watch the movies that you're presenting. Now, you, for you and me, it's, it's a bit different that way. But uh, having talked to friends like in the lobby, I'd, I'd say to the usher with whom I'm friendly, well, what do you think of this current film? He says, well, you know, I, I saw like two minutes of it. Or, you know, I, I was sweeping up and I saw the end credits, that kind of a thing. And sometimes it's just incredibly frustrating for them because enough of them take these jobs because they want to be involved in movies, right? And, and so then you have the frustration of, you know, seeing it a little bit here and a little bit there. And the other thing that's frustrating is you're not only watching or partially watching good movies, the same pertains to bad movies. So imagine you have a job like that and there's a really terrible film playing and you end up seeing parts of it for about three or four weeks. You know, that could probably turn you off from cinema as well. But doubling back on our topic here with Empire of Light, that's one of the things I think that is really interesting about the film. You know, when the theater staff is in the lobby, going through their checks of, is this set? Is that set? Should we open the doors? All of that is very convincingly portrayed. It really gives a sense of what it's like to actually work in a movie theater. And I, I like that, that, that aspect of the film, even though, uh, you know, thematically it hits all these issues with a heavy uh, sledgehammer at times. At the mundane level of theater management, it really, really is, is top notch there. And that ties into what I said at the outset about the production design. I mean, it really makes you feel like you're in the lobby of this theater, and here's the staff setting up for the day. So in terms of the Academy Awards, Mike, where do you think this is going to land? Because I'm going to say it will be nominated for Best Film, but not win. Roger Deakins will definitely be nominated because he's Roger Deakins and he's amazing. And I think Olivia Coleman will be nominated. What do you think? Those are all logical choices by way of nominations. The only reason I shy away a bit in this respect is that the film itself had very mixed reviews, and I'm not a big advocate for aggregate reviewing, you know, percentages that way, but it really did. Having looked at some of those, those numbers, it really got very mixed, kind of tepid response from the critics. So there's not a big critical push for it to, to get nominations. And secondly, commercially, I don't think it's really amounted to a whole lot, you know, so it doesn't really have that clout either critically or, or commercially. My feeling is if it does get a few nominations, it's lucky, and I just don't see it winning in any category. Okay, well, let's move on to A Man Called Otto. And I think, you know, most of the time, I am not a big fan of remakes. But I'm just going to start off by saying I absolutely love this movie. I loved Tom Hanks in the lead role. I can't wait to hear what you think, Mike. Well, Marie loved the film, and I, I 
more or less liked it. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so we, we sort of agree. We're at the same end of the spectrum there, but I'm not as adamantly a, a fan of it. But just to set the stage for it, A Man Called Otto is a remake of a Swedish film called A Man Called Ave, which came out in 2016. And it received an Academy Award nomination for Best International Film. And I, you know, I, I enjoyed that film. And actually, this is a case where the remake, if somebody said to me, before you can ask me, I'll answer the question, which do I prefer? They both work reasonably well. I mean, I, I you know, I don't have a, a clear, I'd probably opt for the Swedish film, Push Come to Shove, but they're both successful films. So what's our premise here? What's our kickoff for A Man Called Otto? In terms of the story, it involves, and with the remake, it's taking place in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, very plausibly conveyed, actually. You get a real sense of neighborhood texture. And so in this neighborhood, there's a man named, yes, he's called Otto, and he's been forced into early retirement, and he is the proverbial grouch and neighborhood watchdog. Whether you want him watching or not, he is. And so, you know, on a very serious note, his wife had recently died. He's, he's extremely depressed. He's got his days to fill. And he fills them by being that neighborhood watchdog, whether it's parking permits or recycling, you name it. You better be careful the moment you set out your front door. He's going to be running across the street to tell you about this or that. And he's really gruff. He's really not nice. And, you know, you try to find the, the tenderness within him and it's just all gruff exterior. Right. So there's that to confront. The thing about him, then, is he's so depressed about his wife's death and about him not having a job or a sense of purpose other than, uh, I guess, parking permits, that he has become suicidal. And so here's where I think the film is at odds with itself. And I think logically doesn't quite hold together. Here, here's why. Otto is a very capable person, not a very likable person, but a very capable person. So we don't see him on the job long enough to know what he was like in the office, I can imagine. But on a technical level, he did his job. He knew his job. There's no indication otherwise there. Personality-wise, that's a different can there. But, you know, the man knows what he's doing. So let's put that to present purpose. He's in his neighborhood. He has a you know meticulous schedule. He does everything exactly. He's really a good planner. All those positive attributes by way of you know a rational planner. So here's where the film's at odds with itself. He decides he's going to commit suicide. And I don't want to spoil anything in the film in terms of the particulars. He tries it this way. He tries it that way. But he bungles every attempt. And it's meant to be comical, actually. And as you can imagine, like, you know, you're trying to hang yourself, you're trying to asphyxiate yourself on and on with the ways you could off yourself. And always something will go wrong and, and go wrong in a way that's going to make you laugh. Uh, and even he has to kind of shake his head and smile at, at some of the failed attempts. But this is why the film doesn't hold together logically, because a man as careful and as logical as he is could certainly find a way to commit suicide. And so that's where, for the sake of the laugh, for the sake of the comedy, you know, it's at odds with itself, and maybe almost knowingly that, it, you know, he's just going to bungle that, but not bungle anything else. And then, of course, you know, the, thematically, the, the agenda is that as he keeps failing, he'll increasingly find reasons to live and, and not to die. And that's facilitated by his interactions with his neighbors. And we'll talk about the neighbors presently. But the fact that they, they're nice to him, even when he's not nice to them. And eventually, he'll sort of come around that way. So, the film is thematically obvious in that respect, but, you know, it, it has some credentials, if you will, by way of, yeah, here's a character that, you know, has some substance and, and he, he's just, you know, suicidal and like increment by increment as he sort of wheels himself back to life. That's a very viable thing. And so that sort of holds it together. 
the other thing that really holds it together, and so I'll just jump in on this, is that it's a really good role for Tom Hanks. He gets to play a grumpy old man. And this is something that happens sometimes to actors of his ilk. By that, I mean, think about Hollywood film history. Think about actors like Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda, who early in their careers almost always play good guys, really likable, all-American types, if you will, you root for them. And then as they got into middle age and, and beyond, they wanted to push back against that image. And they would take on roles that were more disturbing or darker in, in, in some way. And Hanks already with films like Catch Me If You Can has indicated that he occasionally wants to be a little grouchy. But this is the film where he just he's all in on it. And Hanks does a really good job of just just being a curmudgeon. You know, he's very convincing with this. And so I'll give him a lot, a lot of credit for that. And not just Hanks, but this is a family production in a lot of ways. We see him in flashback as a young man when he's in love with his, his wife and, 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 you know, that early sort of honeymoon phase of his life, actually. Well, anyway, in the flashbacks, the Otto character is played by, guess who? Tom Hanks' real-life son, Truman. So, you know, this is a family production already, father and son. And, and of course, the son looks so much like, like the father, as you'd expect, that it's very good casting. We'll leave it at that. But beyond all that, the film is co-produced by Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson. So again, a family production. And not only is she a co-producer, but she contributed to a, a, the songs that we hear in the film. And so that actually helps to hold it together just in the sense of it is cohesive that way. You know, I don't embrace the film as fully as, as Marie does, but I acknowledge that, you know, it really holds together on its own terms. So let me hand it back to you at this point in terms of why you loved it. Well, I will say I did not have the same misgivings that you did in terms of, yes, he's very efficient. He's very handy. It is inexplicable that a man that, you know, with that much adeptness with his hands would fail this many times at trying to commit suicide. But that's where I thought it was actually sort of smart because it's he can't work on himself. You know, he can criticize others, tell others what they're doing wrong, what they should be doing differently. But he can't do it to himself, kind of like it's hard to cut your own hair. And the fact that he uh, fails so many times is always due to the fact that what he hasn't counted on is the people around him, literally his neighbors, who are going to interrupt at the most inopportune time because he's given up on people and he's given up on life. So he is constantly surprised by the fact that these neighbors keep inserting themselves into his plans. And the reason why I think that works is that they are so persistent, even when they're not interrupting him, you know, trying to take his own life, but just in general, that you know when they start banging on the door or whatever, they're not going to go away. Uh, it's not like he can just ignore them and, and carry on. He must stop what he's doing and go deal with it. But he never takes into account that somebody else might be there to stop him, even though it keeps happening over and over. And I thought that was actually sort of a brilliant plot development. And I was in a movie that theater it was the opening day and it was absolutely packed. And it had a huge reaction from the crowd. And I always like to take a look at people, you know, gathering all their stuff at the end of the movie. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place. Everybody had tissues or honking into, you know, paper towels that they, you know, taken in with their food. It was just such an audience friendly movie received just incredibly well. And that might have been part of the reason why I enjoyed it so much is I was swept up in the sort of communal enjoyment of the story and of Tom Hanks. 
Well, one area where I do strongly agree is his interactions with the neighbors. I mean, these are funny because the neighbors are always so persistently nice and he just keeps, he keeps kicking them back, right? He just doesn't want to acknowledge the niceness and eventually he will soften a little bit that way. But in that respect, the one character I absolutely adored was his uh, across the street neighbor, Marisol and her husband, Tommy. They have two small kids. She's pregnant with another the actor is is a, a Mexican actor, Mariana Trevino. She's terrific. I mean, terrific. it's a combination. It's a combination of a really well written role and an actress who just hits it out of the park. And every time she comes on screen, I'm with her that way. I mean, she's just and she's a, the most persistent of the neighbors. She, she'll bring over food. To, you know, she'll she'll always be there to ask his advice. And she's more than anyone the person who pulls him back in, into life. And that really kept me with the film, actually. I, it was such a pleasure to see her. And yes, the film is very audience friendly. I mean, it, it, it is really a crowd pleaser that way. So I didn't want to be a grumpy old man watching it. So, you know, I, I acknowledge that, you know, it has that appeal to it for sure. You know, I had gone into it. I try never to read any reviews before I go see anything just so I can, you know, experience it without any preconceived ideas but i had heard from people that oh you know i i heard that that wasn't any good that nothing happens and i thought oh okay well even if that's the case i mean i want to see it because you know i want to see what tom hanks does with this role and i disagree i think plenty happens i'm not sure what they were expecting i mean it certainly wasn't you know car chase kind of and then the robot shows up kind of thing it's not that kind of a movie at all it's a movie about people and relationships well, when you get comments like that, you know what's being said really is it, it's not action-packed that in the way you're, you're saying right now. It's a character study. And you know, there's a lot of interaction. There's a lot happening on that day-to-day -day level of, you know, this guy and his neighbors and the details of, of his life. And so at that level, there is a lot happening. But that, at that other level, it doesn't have explosions and car chases and it's not plot-heavy that way. And I think sometimes because we are so action oriented with our filmmaking, not just superhero movies, sometimes character studies get short shrift. Sometimes they actually sort of get bad mouth that way, where somebody will say, well, not much happens. You know, it's just some guy talking to his neighbors. And it's like, well, you know, must every picture have that kind of action sequence? You know, all the action here mostly takes place on the street as he tells a guy not to park his car there or, or as he goes out to sweep his snow off of the sidewalk. But again, it's, it's those details that actually pull you into the neighborhood and into the story. And there's a story, but again, it's very much a character study, this guy called Otto. After I watched it, I came home and watched the Swedish one, a man called Ave, and was surprised by how many of the jokes were word for word. But then how they took the American remake and they sort of developed a couple of characters a little further than they had been in the Swedish version. Now, the Swedish version was nominated for things when it came out. How do you think Otto's going to do with the Academy? You know, because it's such an audience friendly film and, and it's Tom Hanks, you know, I, I think it'll be uh, mentioned. You know, I mean, I, I always hesitate to go specifically into what's going to be nominated for this or that because I don't want to be wrong. Right. But it's the sort of film that that's, you know, I think people will pay attention to there because it's it's had good reviews. Audiences love it in the way you're indicating. And, you know, certainly, you know, Tom Hanks being Tom Hanks and, and I would say uh, Mariana Trevino. I mean, you know, she should get a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. I mean, she's really wonderful in this. So, yeah, I actually even, even though I'm not the biggest fan of the film, I do hope it gets some acknowledgement, some recognition that way. Oh, I think it's going to do better than that. I agree with you that uh, Best Supporting Actress, definitely. 
I think Tom Hanks will probably be nominated, although I don't know if he will win. But I think this has a real shot at Best Picture. And I, I'm just talking because of what I like in the movies. It's everything I like about a movie. It's, you know, one of your favorite actors doing a role that is, you know, not really something they do all the time. It's a good story and it makes you laugh and cry. I mean, what more is there, Mike? You're going for my vote. And if you keep going, you'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> You're very persuasive. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens when the when the nominations come out. But that does bring us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts, though, at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 